You're listening to the Coffee and Clergy Podcast. I'm Pastor Scott, and we're glad that you're joining us today. You can watch us live on YouTube or Facebook on Wednesday mornings, or you can check us out in audio format wherever you get your podcasts. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Welcome to Coffee and Clergy. I'm Pastor Doug Chinberg. I'm Pastor Scott Pitch. We're glad to have you back with us today as we continue on our series in the Gospel of Luke. We're uh, coming towards the end of our, our series, actually, believe it or not. I think we've got one more week after this one, and then we'll be wrapping it up. And so if you've been with us this whole time, welcome. If it's your first time with us, we also want to welcome you, but let you know that you can find the, the other episodes uh, to get caught up if you so wish to. Uh, they'll, they're posted on face, our Facebook page. Uh, in our YouTube page at King of Kings Lutheran Church, and so you can find those there. Or you can go on our, uh, and find them on podcast format by searching for Coffee and Clergy, wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, so, yeah, we're uh, winding down in Luke. we got a few more chapters and some pretty important events coming up. That's right. Um, and so we hope that uh, you grab a Bible and grab something to drink, sit down uh, on your comfy chair, and can join us in God's Word today. Um, Maybe before we begin, we should open with a prayer, though. So let's do that. I'll open this, and okay. we can hop right into our discussion today. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your presence with us today, for your Holy Spirit at work in our lives, uh, to allow your word to produce uh, good fruit in the lives of your people. Today, Lord, as we uh, enter into discussion uh, in the Gospel of Luke, I pray that you would uh, help us to, to remember <clears throat> all that Christ has done for us, that his teachings are still for us today, but even more importantly, what he has done uh, for us is still uh, what marks us as people with a hope and a future today. I pray that you would be with those who are joining us, whether it be live in person or later on, uh, that uh, in these moments, in reflection of your word, uh, you would speak clearly and impactfully into their lives. And I pray that uh, you would get our discussion between Pastor Doug and myself today. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. So we are uh, in the Gospel of Luke on chapter 21. And um, the uh, opening section, uh, we'll go ahead and jump right in. The opening yeah. section is short. And so it's the first four verses. And I'll, I'll go ahead and read that. This okay. is where uh, G Jesus is watching people put money into the, uh, the temple treasury. And so uh, Luke 21 says, As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor woman, a poor widow, put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And so it's, first of all, it's interesting just to, to uh, 
we kind of get to observe Jesus as he observes those who are putting money in the temple treasury. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously God knows all that we do, um, but it uh, uh, brings up a question about as people give to the church, um, maybe we should ask the question, um, when is God pleased with our contributions, our offerings to the church? Are there some things that, what can we learn from this, this passage of scripture? Yeah, I think, uh, once again, every time you read Scripture, context matters, and that's why reading through the Bible in this way is good. If you look back on the previous chapter, you hear about beware the, the teachers of the law, right? And Jesus is kind of showcasing for the people around that these people claim to be religious, holy, close to God, doing His will, but they're just doing it kind of for show, for an outward thing. And we know that God's not looking at the outward appearance. He's looking at the heart. He's looking at the, the motivation and intention behind the action that's done as much as the action itself. And so here he sees a widow who's about as direct a contrast between a Pharisee as you could possibly be, right? Widows during Jesus' time didn't have you know, social welfare programs. If they didn't have adult children to take good care of them, they were pretty much beggars at that point. Uh, oftentimes, uh, widows are used to showcase uh, in, in the various Gospels and in the Old Testament to um, the need for generosity in society. And so here Jesus is looking at a, a very poor, um, misfortunate uh, widow who's got a, a tough life, and he sees that there's rich men putting their, their myriad gifts, their wonderful treasures into the, um, into the temple treasury, but they're doing so pridefully, arrogantly, greedily sometimes wanting other people to make sure that they see them yeah. and uh, maybe even letting those coins clink loud at the, mm -hmm. at the bottom of the treasury can. Jingling it around. Yeah. And, then, and then you get this widow who has two copper coins, basically the equivalent of two pennies today, very little money, uh, but she gives what she has. And her giving is not a giver, giving to show outwardly that she's you know, honoring God, but, but that her heart is set towards um, honoring God with her gift, even though the outward show is unimpressive, to say the least. So. Yeah, and um, and so as as uh, Jesus is watching again, um, um, there are some other passages in Scripture that talk about um, giving as well. Um, I think of First Corinthians sixteen that that talks about as Paul was talking to the church at Corinth. He said, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside uh, a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. That was, uh, again, the context was a, a famine that was taking place in Jerusalem. He was encouraging those who have been uh, helped by the gospel to help the Jerusalem church, yep. which had kind of been the mother church of, of where everything got started. And now that they were in trouble, Paul said this is a, an opportunity to help them as well. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then he also spoke in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Yeah. Um, and I, I love that cheerful giver image. Um, I think the Greek word is 
hilarion, where we get our, our word hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's the way that God wants us to give our gifts um, uh, with great joy mm-hmm. as we share them with others. And You'd think it should say something like, God loves a massive gift, but in reality, the gift is, is secondary. Yeah. It's the, I mean, this goes all the way back to Genesis. When you look at Cain and Abel, what was the problem, right? Cain gave a gift out of compulsion. He gave a gift, regardless of what the gift was, God looked at his heart. And he looked at Abel's heart, and Abel gave a good gift, but the gift wasn't that important. It was what was in his heart. Yeah. We see the same thing at play here, the same dynamic. So um, when we maybe talk about Christians giving today, what are some of the ways that we uh, can encourage them to give? And, and I'm thinking, uh, you know, he talks deliberately, proportionately, joyfully, um, out of faith because yeah. of God's love for them. Yeah. yeah. And, and secretly, too. I think you touched on the, all those. You got the, the dynamic of, uh, of giving as a priority, the very first dollar out of your paycheck should be the dollar that goes to God. Yeah, it's the first fruits idea. Um, The very very first is one. Uh, The very best uh, or the very, like, most from your heart is is the secondary thing. And then then not for the sake of men, but for God is is another characteristic, yeah. Yeah. And then, so uh, another way to look at that today is, uh, you know, even as we look at people today, um, should the poor be encouraged to give to the church even today? Oftentimes we think of those who are poor and we think maybe the church should help them, um, which is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are times where we do help those in need. Um, but should those who are poor also, uh, meaning they may not have much, but should they give as well yeah. uh, to God's work? Well, I'd, I've never actually taken a full course on this, but I know that King of Kings offers peace, uh, peace Financial Peace University at, at times. And um, one of the things I know I've heard uh, come from that, from the sort of Dave Ramsey philosophy, is that um, that generosity is one of the chief characteristics to indicate a wealthy person. And it's sort of like what produces generosity? Is it the fact that there's a lot of wealth? And so they're like, oh, I've got to be genero- generous with this now. Or is it the fact that generosity, something about having a heart of generosity also establishes a heart of valuing money for what it is or um, the, basically the premise there is that 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 uh, it's sort of that premise from the, the reading, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that if we, if we don't have a heart which is dedicated to being generous, then the generosity that, that comes, that we reap from from God might be impacted by that because our heart's in a bad place or turning away from God and things like that. Now, it's also very, uh, there's a trend that, that we think of sometimes as rich people as being greedy, right? That they try and hoard as much of their money as they can. And there are people who, who do that. Um, and there are, there are people who are poor who do a great job of giving uh, and don't get rich all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So you have to contend with those types of examples as well. Um, but certainly better than riches in a bank account is a heart of generosity um, because God can do things with a heart of generosity. Yeah. He can do really powerful things. And, and some of the people who have done the most good for others are people who have taken vows of poverty. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when you think of the Mother Teresas of the world and the, 
you know, people who don't live extravagant lifestyles but have really had a big impact on others. I ask myself the question, can those who are poor also be uh, deliberate in their giving and also have a heart of generosity and also give by faith and because of God's love uh, from their first fruits? And Mm -hmm. um, I would say the answer is yes. And, um, but each person gives, uh, again, um, um, uh, not reluctantly, they give what they decide to give, what, they, what they're able to. Uh, there are other directives in the Bible that um, uh, we could talk about tithing. That's a, a different thing, but that uh, we could go on and on about the subject. But, mm-hmm. um, but even those who are poor can, can have a generous heart. We've also talked about here at, at King of Kings, it's not just the giving of finances, but time and talents. Yeah. Uh, as well, and people can be generous with with those gifts also. And they all stem from the same heart, right? If you're generous with your finances, you're probably more apt to be generous with your time and talents. Absolutely. And if you you start by saying, I don't have the pocketbook to be extremely generous, but you figure out ways to be extremely generous with your God-given skills and abilities and with the time that you have, You'll, you will usually, God will usually provide a heart that is generous with the financial resources to be generous financially too. Yep, yep absolutely. Um, and so it's worth we're saying that generosity produces more generosity. Yeah. And God, uh, I mean, the, the verses to, to whom much has been given, uh, or whom, I forget how it goes exactly, to, yeah. to whom much has been uh, much is given, much given, is required. Much is required. So, um yeah, that's that's what it is. Is like if you have those gifts, then then you're called to, to give. Yeah. Well, let's keep going um, on to this next section, uh, starting with verse five, uh, five through nineteen. And do you want to read that one? Okay. Um, signs of the end of the age. So we're really getting down to it now. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God, but Jesus said, "As for what you see here, the time has come." When not one, a time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When, the, when you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first. But the end will not come right away. So then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors and and all on account of my name. This will result in, you, in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will, be, will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Okay, talking about signs at the end of the times. Um, 
maybe what should be our attitude? Uh, uh, there are people around us that say they know when Christ will come again. We've had uh, people um, uh, identify specific dates and times when Christ will come again. Um, and so what should be our attitude towards people who claim that they know the day and the time? Skepticism. Uh, I, there's such a fascination in, in people who are... I have noticed a fascination with end times in people who are like very... I gotta be careful. I say this, but the Bible uses this sort of spiritually immature Christians. Okay. People who are, know a little bit are all of a sudden super fascinated by the end time stuff because uh, there's books and movies and all kinds of stuff, and it's sort of fantastical, and they want to get a grasp over what it looks like. And when whenever the Bible talks about it, a it uses apocalyptic language, which is not what we call literal. It's still true. And it's still God's word, but it's not to be taken as a literal interpretation of things. So we don't think there will be a you know, seven-headed thing that, that pops out or whatever. It's, it's a representation of the authorities of the world and, and, of, and of Satan. Um, but here, here in this language, we have some very practical, like pragmatic, these are the signs of the, the end of days things. But when you look at them, you go through them, and it's like wars and rumors of wars. Hmm. Do we see any of that going on? Earthquakes today? and famines. Earthquakes and famines. Or flooding. Uh, we, <laughs> we had flooding here. Yeah, it's like, but hold on. These things are certainly going on today, but haven't they been going on like all throughout, along, right? Throughout history. Have Christians been persecuted in this world all along? Yes. I mean, and this is sort of the thing is, I, I think what Jesus is pointing us to is, he's, he's telling us not to be too hasty to wish for the end of things to come. Yeah. That there's still work for Christians to do today, now, while all these things are going on, Christians have a high calling to be advocates in this world so that others can know about Christ before that end finally comes. Um, and so it's not about the, an accounting of the events that will occur that will convince us we need to be ready when that light switch goes off or whatever. And it's more about being prepared all the time, not just prepared to, you know, go up to heaven, but be prepared for the work God gives you each and every day and look for those opportunities to love and serve and witness about Christ while the wars are going on, while the famines are going on and the earthquakes and the persecutions um, during all this time. Be, be ready, be prepared to serve and to love. So to have a, have a caution, uh, I guess the way that I like to think about it or say it is to have a caution for people whose end time theology shapes the rest of their theology. Yeah. And um, so have to have a, uh, uh, a caution about that, but also to recognize that, uh, again, these things are going on all around us and um, the, I think these things serve as a warning yeah. um, that we live in the end times. Christ could come again. So, but, but see, this is the tough thing. Even Paul would say, we're in the end times in right. 70 AD. So yeah. it's, tu it's tough when you think of it in human terms. It's almost, and it's probably the source of a lot of, of uh, doubt uh, of uh, sort of the gospel message. Is like, well, if they said... Jesus is coming soon, and it's 2,000 years later, what was taking him so long? But that, they're not thinking the way God thinks, right? right? Or that the way Christ's people are, are called to think. We're called to think not in terms of, like, 
linear time how long it takes but in times of in terms of God, the way God fulfills his promises right and you think Old Testament covenant kind of things right it's like when he told Abraham your children will be as numerous as the stars and the dude had one kid right it's like okay hurry up God what's going on you're not thinking the way God thinks God doesn't think you know I'll give all this to you right away because you're looking for it he says no I'm gonna spread the fulfillment of my covenant promise out on my time your job is not to count the hours your job is to be faithful, look, be faithful and look for the fulfillment of the promise yeah. and so we live in that kind of a a dynamic too where we're like well it's the end times like is it any moment or if you spend all your time thinking those thoughts you're wasting a lot of your life worried about when the end times come rather than looking in at how to be faithful and wait for the promise to come by being active today. Yeah, so if people give you a prediction, um, uh, be, have some skepticism um, because Christ tells us that nobody knows the day or the hour. Yeah. And, uh, um, and so there, there have been some prophecies that, that Jesus shared. Um, he said, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and um, uh, he tells us these things must happen, but the end will not come right away. And um, uh, so have Christ's prophecies, uh, we've talked about how they've been fulfilled. Um, uh, and maybe another question is, you know, will we ever have peace that, that goes uh, in, encompasses the world? And the answer would be... Not until the end. Yeah, not until the end. Not until the world is remade in, in the image of the Garden of Eden. Um, yeah, that, the, the war will go right up to the last moment and death will go right up to the last moment and disease and pain and suffering will go right up to the last moment and, and then it will be put to death forever yeah and so god calls us to be ready and waiting and yet faithful yep. to continue to do his work um, the next this this goes on uh, verses 20 to 27 um, and i'll read through that uh, it says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is a time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And so, first of all, he talks about uh, uh, what's going to happen with Jerusalem. And so, what does this destruction of Jerusalem uh, teach us today? It's kind of crazy for the hearers standing there. Like, we know that verses 20 through 24 are historical events which are being directly prophesied. Um, and it's the overturning of Jerusalem, which happens in 70 AD, about, about 30 years after Jesus' death. And um, 
So, but, but we have the benefit of hindsight. They didn't. So for them, all of the language that Jesus has just said sounds like predictions and prophecies and apocalyptic language. But kind of nested right in the middle of, of like universal end times comes the end of the kind of Old Testament Judaism you know, practice model of yeah of, of the temple mm-hmm. and sacrificial system, ceremonial law system, that kind of stuff, and so the it's impactful for us because we have the historical information that the Romans came in, tore the temple down stone by stone, you know, basically salted the earth in Jerusalem and dispersed diaspora style all of the Jews around the rest of the the empire and the kingdom. Um, and that's still sort of the history in the very recent time that we have today is they, the, the people of, of God or the Israelite people didn't really, they're still spread all over the world and they didn't really have a place to reunite until the 1940s, right? In the late 1940s and early 1950s. And so um, we, we kind of see the, we see the strings of this prophecy even in our, our relatively recent history books even yet today. And it helps us to see that these these events that are occurring are not simply um, kind of fanciful, poetic imagery. These are like when it says how terrible it will be for mothers and and you know uh, pregnant women. It's like, yeah, it was like these are real people who suffered real hardships, real hardships, right? And um, so then it makes you take more seriously the idea of like prophecies about the earth and the moon and the sun and the stars quaking while the son of god returns it's like these things are not going to be um just fanciful poetic things that happen these are going to be really real historical events that occur just like the the sacking of jerusalem in 70 ad so yeah um, worth paying attention to there there are other places in scripture that that talk about um, uh, uh, the end of the world and things that happen. Um, there's a passage in Second Peter 3 uh, that talks about that. Um, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything uh, done in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Uh, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Uh, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. And um, another passage, Old Testament passage from Joel chapter 2, um, where Joel says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And uh, so here we have some more uh, uh, ways in which the world will be uh, described at the end of time. And um, uh, first of all, he describes it like a thief. What does that mean? I mean, the thief is the tamest part of that whole description. It's yeah. kind of terrifying, right? I mean, uh-huh. if someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night, you don't, you're, you're not thinking, you know, you're not thinking, oh no, somebody's hungry and needs some food. You're thinking, someone's here to kill me and my whole family. Like, yeah. you're scared, you're terrified. It's taking you in a moment of your your weakness and unreadiness when you're asleep in your bed. And sort of that, that's the kind of image that that Jesus or that Peter is trying to portray. And 
in Second uh, Peter here that that when when the end times do come, there's no, going to be no warning. There's no time to prepare. Like if you're not already prepared at that point, you're not going to have a moment to get things in order while the thief breaks in. Yeah. Um, and this is this is sort of the thing when you read these verses from Second Peter and from Joel. It's kind of like. These are really scary. Like, should we all be walking around like timid and trying to avoid the end times things? Well, no. That one of the things that's really interesting in in the Second Peter passage is Peter kind of exhorts us. He says, "What type of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives and look forward to the day of God and speed its coming." Meaning, yeah. we should attempt to do all we can to bring these events about. And you're like. Well, why in the world would we want to bring about the sun burning out and the moon turning to blood? Like, why would we want that? And the the reason that Jesus shares is these are like birth pains, right? That the joy only comes once the event is done, but mm-hmm. the lead up to the event is hard and difficult and scary. Yeah. And we need to realize that's what we are about as God's people, is we... We are well-equipped, more than anyone else in the world, we are well-equipped to handle and deal with the birth pains because we have something to look forward to, the, the birth of the child in this analogy, or God's fulfillment of his promise to us beyond that pain and that sorrow and that scariness. And so we are well equipped to help the world. We are the only ones at all equipped to help the world cope with the destruction, pain, suffering, sadness that we see around us, which are the birth pains leading to the end of time. So God doesn't want us to be afraid. Mm-hmm. He wants us to be faithful looking to him, trusting in him, knowing that when Christ comes again, sin will be destroyed. God will give us a new heaven and a new earth. There is mm-hmm. something to look forward to um, that will be a, a great blessing for God's people. God will get to see God face to face. We'll live in his presence. Um, and it will be a time similar to what, when God created, first created the world yeah. and had time with Adam and Eve. And so you could, you could almost say, um, that we are the ones who are called to be calm and, and controlled and happy about these things leading to the end of all things. Rather, while everyone else is scurrying and, and scared and worried, we're kind of the ones who are called. It's like in an emergency situation. If somebody, if you've ever been in a public place when someone had an emergency or something like collapsed or fell down, the ones that are actually doing something helpful are the ones who are calm mm-hmm. and know what to do and you know, approach the person or help the person. Everyone else is, you know, ah, oh, what's, yeah, what's gonna, freaking out what's and happen. running around. They're not doing anything helpful. And so we're kind of, as Christians, called to be those people. I think you could also say another thing, too, is that that mood about the end of time, it's really the way that Christians should also approach their final days in life, that we don't approach our final days in life with dread not knowing what's coming next, but we approach our final days as if, though, these are the final you know, birth pains or struggles before we enter into something that's way better than we've ever known. Yeah. And um, that should, it's not going to bring us like, like leaping and jumping joy, but it at least gives us a comfort and a peace and even maybe a little joy knowing that there's something beyond. And that's what makes people go, why are you that way when you you know you're going to be dying soon of whatever it is that you have? It's the hope. Um, that you have that gives you that joy. Yeah, I like what Peter said when he said, and you look forward to that day and you you speed its coming. You want it to happen. Um, We want God to come. We want um, uh, sin to be destroyed. We want to to enter his new creation. And uh, so those are are things that we look forward to and want to celebrate. Definitely. 
So, um, so as we look at the events of the world, uh, maybe what's the best way as we look at the events of the world, um, uh, how should, what should we keep in mind? It's that God is in control. I God's think in control. Okay. One. I mean, yeah. it's going to be chaos. Uh, the world is full of chaos already, and it's not going to get more and more orderly and neat as the world starts to fall apart. <laughs> um, as the world begins to, as societies begin to crumble and fall, which I think is something that, that we can already see beginning to happen around us, as, as all sense of kind of godly morality or adherence to his laws, it starts to resemble more and more the Old Testament church falling away from God. Um, there'll be wake-up calls sent by our God to help us along the way, and those are not always easy. Those are going on all around us. Yeah. Um, and really, it sort of goes back to that Second Peter 3. is like, what do you do in the midst of all this? Well, you do what you've always done. You're to lead holy and godly lives, meaning you follow his commands even when things seem chaotic and crazy. So. Well, let's, um, that brings us to the next chapter. Um, uh, did we finish that? I think that? we need to oh. do 28 to 38 ah, first. Yeah. Okay. So let's read right. 28 to 38, and then we'll finish out the All chapter right. here. Uh, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. When told them this, Then he told them this parable, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word, my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all of those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Okay. Um, so it, again, it's going to come quickly like a trap. Uh, like like a thief, um, but he always wants us to be on watch yep. and to be ready and to be prepared, and and maybe that's another way of saying um, have faith in him, looking to him, trusting in him um, um, for whatever is about to happen, um, and uh, pray that you can escape. Again, it's going to judgment. Um, there will be things that won't be pleasant. But um, again, God uh, reminds us that, uh, that we will, at that time, then stand before Christ, yep. uh, the Son of Man. And, um, um, and so it's interesting that, that uh, you know, there are people, that, again, today that are interested in those end-time things, uh, just as there were in Jesus' day. Um, but he, again, uh, framed it in the way that they should understand it and look at it and continue to live their lives. Mm -hmm.
So, Alrighty. Um, okay, that brings us to, to chapter 22. And um, um, got a long section here. 1 through 20. Okay. And so uh, this next section talks about Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed then came that day. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asked, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have already desired to eat I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so uh, here we have Jesus and his uh, disciples celebrating uh, an Old Testament event um, and the Passover. And what did that commemorate? The, the escape from Egypt, the Exodus, uh, out of slavery. And the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, really, the event in particular is the last plague, um, which was the um, the death of the firstborn, which was the plague that finally convinced Pharaoh to let let the Israelites go. And so, uh, yeah, what were the Israelites asked to do? To smear blood across their door frame to indicate the house was was redeemed. I guess is the way to put it by God. And so, all of the Israelite houses that did that were passed over by the angel of death and all of the ones that were not the angel of death took the firstborn and killed them yeah and um and so we already in that old testament story we see uh, uh we see that pointing that passover lamb was uh what we call a type mm -hmm. um uh that pointed to the true passover lamb which is christ which is christ yep. and um he is the one who takes away the sin of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a passage in, in 1 Corinthians um, that refers to that, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Uh, Paul says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch of unleavened bread uh, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Mm. 
And uh, so he points very clearly uh, to Christ uh, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, and we also hear of Jesus, how uh, he shared the words of institution. And um, how do we understand that in the Lutheran Church? Yeah, so uh, we take the word of Jesus very seriously. And often we say his words are uh, what we call performative speech, that when he says something, it's done. That's how God created heavens and the earth, right? He spoke it into existence. So when we, we say when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, given and shed for you, that when he says this is, that in fact it is. Uh, we don't try to explain it or or quantify or or validate the mystery of it. We simply are okay with the mystery of it because it's God is the one who's doing it. Yeah. And God operates mysteriously all the time. Um, so we, But we also don't deny the fact that it's bread and wine too because we know it says he took the bread, he took the cup. So they're there. Yeah. So we we say they're there as well. The wine and the bread are there with, in, with, and under the body and the blood of Christ. Yeah. So we, we have a, a communion confession that we use here at, at King of Kings. And, um, you know, it, it helps put us in the right mind of what's taking place and what, what is happening here. Uh, but we talk about it's, it's for people who believe in Jesus Christ. Yep. It's for people who um, recognize that they're sinful and are in need of forgiveness. Um, uh, we, we recognize that the body and blood of Christ is, is present, um, again, in a mysterious way. Um, and, um, um, and, and so we uh, receive that gift of God as repentant sinners, knowing that he will forgive our sins. Um, and uh, uh, so it's one of, the, one of our sacraments, one of the means of grace that we talk about. Uh, because through it we receive that forgiveness of sins, mm -hmm. and um, and so um, so that's why we encourage people to receive it often, and um, and because it does give us the forgiveness of sins, and and uh, 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 you know again, somebody explained the mystery of God. Um, uh, in a couple of different ways. Sometimes people look at a mystery of it's something that's unknown that becomes known. Um, but he also said that another way to talk about a mystery is, is something that we can't fully explain, something that's beyond us, yep. something that we can't plumb the depths to because there's always more there. Yeah. Um, and this sacrament is, is indeed a mystery. It's sort of, I don't want to equate the miracles of God with, with magic shows at all, but if you just can pardon the analogy for a second, it's almost like when you go to a magic show like a magician, it's like if you understood every single thing the magician did, his entire show, it would be the most boring thing ever. Yeah, I know what he's going to do. You'd just be there and be like, oh. He's going to do oh, this. He's doing this thing. But like the wonder of it and the, the sort of purpose of it is that it's not understood. It's a mystery. Mm -hmm. And the mystery is what makes it valuable. And God's mysteries obviously are not sleight of handshakes. They are real, true miracles. And to try to, to, try to explain them does two things. First, it it puts God in a box, which he is not inside of. So it's kind of a, a, a deception to say you can understand the mysteries of God. And on the second hand, you take away all the majesty of it. You take, you, if by trying to over-explain things and not allowing the mysteries of God to, to be, you're, you're like that guy at a magic show who's explaining every single thing, even if you don't really understand, you think you understand falsely. And it takes away the enjoyment of it all. It takes away the participation in it all. It takes away... The joy of it all, yeah. Yeah, and I, I always appreciated the uh, 
the, one of the quotes that Luther made where he said, wherever you find the forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. Yep. And that's what we have in this gift that uh, is given to us uh, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. and, um, um, and so we receive it uh, with thanksgiving and reverence uh, with a thankful heart knowing that God forgives our sins. Smart guy, that Luther. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, shall we keep going? Yeah. In verse 21. Uh, 21. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with me on the is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Si um, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you, uh, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Okay. Um, so it begins with Jesus telling his disciples that someone will, in their group, will betray him. And um, we recognize that Satan is behind uh, that activity, and and uh, but sometimes we forget that um, that he is he's in our world alive today. Mm -hmm. And so, why should we be on guard against Satan? Well, I think a lot of times we think that the closer we are to Jesus, the more. Th that Satan and his schemes will leave us alone. But if you look here, one, two, two of his disciples are tormented by Satan in the lead up to Jesus' death. Judas gives in to Satan's whims and demands. And so does Peter, technically. Yeah, yeah at the but, beginning. But at least Peter has the wherewithal to, to repent of, of his transgression and to feel sorry for it right away, right? Um, and you think about, you know, who was the most tormented 
man on earth by the devil when Jesus was here walking on the earth. I can guarantee you it was Jesus. <laughs> we know for, for a fact he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness during his moment of greatest weakness. But I guarantee that was not the only time that Satan tempted Jesus, right? Yeah. In the, in the garden, yeah, because it says until, uh, until Satan until found another opportune time. And so I can guarantee that Satan was constantly picking at Jesus' heels, trying to get him to stumble once. You know, if you can get him to stumble once, that's all he needs. And you think about who's like the most spiritually, you know, tormented people that are around today. It's like the, the devil knows if he can get someone who's seen as a, a spiritual person or a religious person. I mean, you look at like, priests or even pastors in yeah. you know in Lutheran church and they they are prey to the same temptations and sins as anybody else and frankly they're probably more tempted because the devil knows if he can get one of those he can bring down the faith of many others you think about like the pope and stuff if, if the devil could get the the pope to fall into some grievous sin think of how many souls that would damage and i guarantee the the popes are under spiritual warfare so even though we're lutherans and you know, we don't believe that the the Pope is any you know has any you know authority that he claims really more than any other minister of the word. Uh, we should still pray for him because his influence has a lot of uh, far-reaching stuff, and we should pray that that uh, he would overcome temptation and that he would turn from uh, from sin to to honor God and serve others. So yeah. Um, that kind of led into the next question of how can we help our fellow believers yep. uh, when they struggle with sin or temptation. Yeah. Um, you mentioned prayer. Um, are there some other things that we can do? Well, temptations are never uh, unshackled to our life, right? We never have just purely spiritual temptations. It's always, it's always tied together with something, our greed or our lust or, you know, some, it's some, there's some substantial thing in the world, some need that is impacted by our, by our temptations. And so um, who, who is it that's called in our world to, to serve others? And that's, that's us, right? We are called to build each other up. We are called to serve each other in our moments of weakness and uh, to heal when there's hurt and speak words of encouragement in moments of despair. The devil likes to, to come after people. He's, it talks about him as like a, 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 a prowling lion looking for whom he will devour. Well, if you look at the way lions hunt, they don't go after the biggest, strongest, healthiest you know, buck in the herd. They go after the, the weak ones who are, or the newborns or the um, sick ones because they know they can pick them off real easy without much fight. That's the way the devil operates. He looks for people who are in their moments of weakness and and that's where other Christians are called to to intercede in the lives of other people around them to help them in their moments of weakness to encourage them in the faith that they have to pray for them like you said uh, to serve them in Christian love and fellowship uh, and these are all great defenses and wards to keep Satan and his minions away yeah in and those if, moments of weakness and if someone has fallen you know God calls us as people of uh, as his people to go to those people and help restore them yeah um, uh, to demonstrate love and to offer forgiveness and and to stand by them be with them uh, 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 through those difficult times yeah. Yeah. to go back to that herd analogy too I think this is the importance of Christian fellowship too you put the weak and, and the sick in the center of the herd where they don't stand out mm-hmm 
and they're defended. That's the importance, I think, to take that analogy in Christian fellowship today. I think the devil is having a field day with all these isolated people. Mm-hmm. People who think they're, they're you know, still a part of things but are way out there on an island um, for whatever reason. You know, there's good reasons and there's not good reasons. But like, that's a dangerous place to be is in isolation as a Christian because you're making yourself a target. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the importance of Christian fellowship is we are... We are here in this place to build each other up, defend each other from temptation, encourage each other in God's word, and remind him of his promises to them. Yeah. I just put in a plug for our small groups. One of the things that we're already planning for for this fall is is to help our people to get into small groups. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the best places to be. They can, uh, they'll be in God's word. They'll be talking about God's word. They'll be in fellowship with others. They'll be praying for one another. And... Um, so that's a, a key part of our ministry, and yeah. and uh, well, starting up in, in September. So you can be on the lookout for more, you know, act, activities related to small groups as we go. But that's definitely a great way to to find yourself well entrenched in in the fellowship of believers at King of Kings, and to and to participate in the ministries that we have here and be an active part in that work. Yeah. So what if what if someone has fallen in sin? Um, uh, should they despair? Again, we have two examples here in this story, uh, one good example and one bad example. That's a hard question to ask. Should you despair when you greatly betray a friend? It's like, on the one hand, yeah. You kind of should go to a place of like, that was, that was bad, and I should feel some sense of shame, and, and you could even go so far as to say a moment of despair. But it's when you get gripped in that despair and you can't get out of it. Yeah. When, you be, when your whole identity then gets wrapped up in it, that that's the danger. Um, certainly we should lament and the be fact sorry. that we sin. sin. We, we should be sorry and we should try and make, make a recompense for the things we've done that are wrong. And, the, and, and that's all that's kind of captured in that word repent. Yep. Uh, to repent is to recognize the wrong that we've done and the, the hurt that we've caused and, mm-hmm. and to turn from that and, and to go a different direction. Yeah. And because that's an important lesson. We never repent uh, on our own or on an island. It's always, it's always repenting with God or repenting with the one we've offended. And so it's a very relationship-driven word, too, repenting is. Yeah. In fact, we could say the, the Holy Spirit is at work in our life to move us to mm-hmm. repentance. It's, kind of, it's actually one of the fruits of faith mm-hmm. um, uh, to turn us around, to, to see God, to recognize the wrong that we've done, to... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to reach out to a brother or sister that's been hurt, yep. and uh, um, and then and then God gives us an amazing word, uh, a word of assurance and confidence. Um, uh, what 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 happens when we repent? Yeah. He forgives our sins. Right. Our, we got a short verse here from from Hebrew tw- uh, seven twenty five that sums it up. It says, "Therefore, God is able to save completely those who come." Uh, come to God through him. I'm sorry, it's Jesus here. Uh, those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That's that's Jesus working on your side. In that moment of repentance, when you think things are unfixable, Jesus ruthlessly goes to work trying to um, to make you right in God's eyes. Yeah. And uh, no one better to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think at First John, if you know, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And and that's what He desires for us. 
um, uh, again. But we've got Christ as our advocate that is interceding for us, uh, that's at the right hand of the Father, as opposed to Satan who's always accusing us, yep. uh, who wants us to despair uh, in our sin. Uh, but Jesus says, uh, he gives us that invitation, come to me yep. um, and I will forgive you and cleanse you. Um, and he does. And then we have um, uh, another section here and um, see beginning with verse 39, uh, 39 to 53. And uh, so when Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him, on reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And while he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Mm. And so we find Christ praying in the garden. And um, so what can we learn from our Lord here about prayer? Yeah, it's getting down to the very end, right, for yeah. the story. And so we see that here Jesus does what he does all along throughout the Gospel of Luke. He um, acknowledges the will of God is, is supreme, that God is in control. We've said that so many times in this series on Luke, God is in control. Uh, and But yet he's not afraid to bring his petition to God either, as a child brings a, a question to the Father, to their father. Um, and nor should we be. So this is where we should always uh, temper our prayers with the, the petition, Thy will be done, as he told us to do in the Lord's Prayer that he taught us. Um, because God's will has to be supreme. Yeah. Even in above our own request, God's will always has to be supreme. That takes a lot of faith, because a lot of times when we're saying, God, heal me of my cancer, and you say, but not my will, but yours be done. You're basically saying, like, heal me or don't. If you have a reason to not heal me, I don't understand that, but I trust you anyway. And we don't always understand those answers, and we never will until the last day until God makes that knowledge um, that knowledge known. So, Yeah. Yeah. And so we find Jesus humble. Um, we find him praying sincerely. Um, uh, we know that uh, prayer is powerful and effective from other places in Scripture. Mm -hmm. And uh, so does does God need us to pray? No. Okay, God doesn't need us to pray, but he 
wants us to pray, invites us to pray, asks us, even commands us to pray. Um, for what the same purpose? way your mom doesn't need to, you to call her. Yeah. She would really like it if you would yeah. call her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I mean, the prayer is really for our sake. Um, so it, it continues to keep us in touch with God. Mm -hmm. um, it um, acknowledges uh, a, an honest acknowledgement with God. This is my situation. Yeah. And I'm, I'm turning to you and I'm trusting in you. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and we even find Jesus... Um, um, Faced with his enemies, um, the man who's going to arrest him, his ear is cut off, and what does Jesus do to him? Uh, heals him, miraculously. Yeah, uh, and he demonstrates and, his love again. Yeah. And even for the other men who are getting ready to thrash and bash and throw him in jail, he's like, uh, yeah. go ahead, guys, I'm not trying to stop you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah. Uh, again, uh, an example, and as he lives out where Jesus is here, is even loving his enemies. Yeah. And we've got one more section okay. um, from 54. Quick, so 54 to the end. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She, took she looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying, I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Okay. Uh, so it starts off with Peter's denial. It's interesting that all, all of the Gospels uh, uh, tell of Peter's denial. And mm -hmm. why do you think that is? This is a good, this is a good uh, evidence to me of uh, the fact that the Gospels are not manufactured. Because if Peter is one of the leaders of the early church, which is pretty historically undisputed, why would he allow this to get put in every single... It's his ultimate moment of deepest shame, right? Yeah. And here he is sharing it with the world. To me, the, the more likely thing would be if, he, if it was all a farce, he would have made himself look really good. good. Like yeah. he was the only one, like John, he was the only one at the crucifixion who had the courage to be there. But nope, that's not the case. So I think this is an important moment because this moment is a, a bit of an analogy for the moments where we all have not followed the life that Jesus would have us live, right? Where we have failed to do his will, where we have denied him before men in our lives. 
And it's a great story of, of repentance and Jesus' call to follow him, even though we don't deserve to. Yeah. Why do you think there are times, uh, or, or when might be those times when, when Christians are tempted to deny our Lord? Uh, I think peer pressure is a big reason. Um, or just, it may, it may not be peer pressure like the cool kids don't believe in Jesus and neither should you. It's more like there are social disadvantages to offering up the fact that you are a Christian these days. I don't think there always used to be. Um, certainly in the early church, there were major disadvantages to revealing your faith, right? It was death. Um, and we don't know that level of persecution in our nation, but there are certainly that, there is certainly that level of persecution today that's alive and well in certain parts of the world. But there are still social pressures, even in the modern context, that um, to, to offer yourself up as a living sacrifice is not a popular thing to do in today's day and age. And yet that's exactly what Christians are called to do. And so, yeah, that's yeah. just a... I, I think of if there's a, a Christian who is a, um, a science professor at a university, yeah. uh, they often get ridiculed and scoffed at uh, yeah. because of the faith that they have. It's true. But uh, as other people in leadership, um, uh, you know, are their, their whole ability is questioned because mm -hmm. they might have faith in, in God. Uh, but it's not only uh, a time where if, if people question our faith, uh, we also can recognize that God also gives us uh, an opportunity to share the reason for the hope that we have yeah. uh, while we're in those positions as well. And it's not always that we, I mean, we, we, we don't need social opportunities in, in discussions to deny Jesus. We deny Jesus with our actions every single day, right? We, we claim that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and yet we do not obey his, his commands. That's a, what is that if not a denial of his lordship, right? And so we're, we're constantly being called to repent of that every day and uh, acknowledge that we are in need. That's, that's that whole process of confession, that, to acknowledge our shortcoming, that we don't do what he desires. But we find that Peter does um, repent and yep. confess his sin yep. and, um, um, and is forgiven. And how is that an encouragement for us today? That's, that's the process we undergo all the time every day. Uh, we, we repent, we receive his forgiveness, and we are then impelled or put out there to do better, to try again, to show our love for others, uh, and to try and do his commands, uh, heed his commandments. Uh, that's, that's the process of God's grace transforming us into the new creation. Yeah. And where do, we, where do we as Christian people, where do we see that, that, that uh, overwhelming grace and forgiveness offered? In his word and in the sacraments okay. and amongst the fellowship of Christian believers. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's why God wants us to continue to meet together, to work together, uh, to forgive one another and, and to live in that grace. And... Uh, um, so even though there's a great tragedy here towards the end of Jesus's life, we also see that there's uh, repentance that takes place and then a great opportunity, not just for Peter, but a reminder for us as well. Yeah. And uh, uh, as God uh, extends that forgiveness, life, and salvation to us. Yeah. And what a blessing. That's where we're going to stop today. That's where, yeah, come to the end of chapter 22. We've got 23 and 24 next week. They're pretty long chapters. 
but there's a lot that happens there, right? We're right at the the threshold of the crucifixion, and then we've got resurrection and the beginning of the church age to discuss. So yeah. hopefully you can be with us next time. A lot to talk yeah. about. So we've got one lesson left, then we're going to take a little bit of a break. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to take some time off. And uh, um, I guess we can go ahead and announce what we're going to do when we come back. Yeah, we're... Um, we don't know the exact date of our coming back, but when we do, we're going to do a study on Christian vocation and what that means. And you'll hear a little bit more about that word. But essentially, it's uh, an understanding of what we're called to be in, in God. So I think it should be a good discussion. Absolutely. We'll go ahead and close in prayer. And if you bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your work, not only in the lives of uh, uh, your disciples, but your work in, in the world and, and also your work in our lives as well. We thank you for calling us to faith and we recognize uh, that just like Peter, there are so many times we deny you and we fall short of what you have called us to do. Uh, but we also thank you that because of your son and your love for us, that you have called us to repentance, that you restore our faith and our relationship with you uh, and you give us that promise of eternal life. And so we celebrate that and look forward to it and trust in your words and promises as we live our life each day. So today we ask that you guide us and lead us. Um, and uh, so this day as we go forward, again, we ask, help us to see what you're doing around us so that we can join in that work and share your love and your life with those who come in contact with us. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great day in the Lord, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Coffee and Clergy podcast. We're glad you could join the conversation. Coffee and Clergy is a ministry of King of Kings Lutheran Church in Chesterfield, Missouri. You can catch us live on YouTube or Facebook on Wednesday mornings, and we post the podcast on Thursdays. For more information, check out our website at www.kokstl.org. Blessings on your day, and we'll see you next time.